אנא, מועדים לשמחה, מועדים לשמחה, סוכות סאן. ושמחת בחגיך, והיית איך שמח. ושמחת בחגיך, והיית איך שמח. ושמחת בחגיך, והיית איך שמח. אוי, ושמחת בחגיך, והיית איך שמח. Shalom, shalom, happy Sukkot to everyone. What a wonderful time. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are so heavy. They're so heavy. And then Sukkot can feel so light just to be in the nature, the fresh air, the... The weather here in Scottsdale, Arizona this morning was just remarkable, remarkable with my windows down, driving foster kids to school, screaming with, for the car windows to be down as the wind blows in their faces. So uh, I hope it's a good start to everyone's day. Today is also special, 18th of Tishrei. It is the yard site of uh, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, the brother of Rabbi Soloveitchik, or I guess the other Soloveitchik, grandson of Reb Chaim Brisk. But uh, aside from him, It's also um, the yard site of Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, one of the most uh, profound of Hasidic teachers over the last uh, few hundred years, so I guess since the founding of Hasidut, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, who um, he really had two sets of two different kinds of Torahs. One kind of Torah is very simple. You read it, and it's very simple, something like mitzvah to be joyful, and uh, another kind of very complex Torahs, ones you have to read over and over to understand. The other two types he had were one were manic depressant, and the other were kind of uh, very joyful. Um, I mean, some, some, well, I guess, no, very, depre- very depressed on one end and very, very kind of ecstatic on the other end. So he has simple Torahs and complex Torahs. He has um, joyful and depressed Torahs. He was a very emotional person. Obviously, uh, we could, didn't have psychological diagnoses that we can uh, look at, but that's what people have said, uh, that he was a manic depressant individual. Um, and, uh, and he really taught us a lot, a lot of the depth, the depth of how to kind of live in relationship to darkness um, in our lives and in the world. And, um, you know, we talked last time about how the Besh, the Baal Shem Tov, his great-grandfather, talked about where... Um, Uh, where your thoughts are is where you are. Um, you actually are where your consciousness is. You can transcend external circumstances to some degree based on your inner world. And Rabbi Nachman took this even further, even further to actively cultivate through Heath Bodedut and other acts, um, the, uh, the depth of the inner world. And so Rabbi Nachman's Yaritzite today is a good time for us to reflect on the inner life as we will do. But first, first friends, Malacha number 14. As we continue on the theme from last week, our 14th malacha, which is called menapets, menapets, involves brushing or combing clumps of tangled material, typically hair. This malacha, as we have seen in previous weeks, goes back to the practices surrounding the mishkan, the tabernacle. In this case, the minhag, the custom, would be to cut the hair of a sheep. And after a sheep was shorn, the hair would still be tangled and would need to be sorted out so that the animal looked clean. So how does the act of brushing correspond to the higher echelons of Jewish wisdom? Among practitioners of mindfulness, the act of brushing one's teeth, one's hair, is often treated as a good example of something common and mundane that can be elevated by being mindful of the activity. Right? Mindfulness while brushing your hair or your teeth. These are often quieter moments to step away from the hustle and bustle of the world to focus exclusively on the self and on inner life. It's not vanity to take care of one's physical appearance if it provides moments of reflection. It's worth considering. So on the topic of hair, the Talmud teaches that God pays attention to each individual hair, of which there are hundreds of thousands on each person's body, to teach a lesson about the depth of divine concern. This passage comes from the Gemara, of Bava Batra 16a to 16b. Job 
Eov, right? Eov complained about his suffering to God, right? That's the whole theme of the book of Job. Perhaps a storm passed bore, excuse me, perhaps a storm passed before you, causing you to confuse me with your enemy. God replied, I have created many hairs in humans, and for every hair I have created a separate pit, so that no so that two hairs should not take nourishment from the same source. For if they were to take nourishment from the same place, it would cause blindness. If I don't confuse one hair pit with another, why should I confuse Job with another man? And so this is a strange response. God says, Job says, God, why do you ignore my plight? Why do you ignore my plight? And God's response is, no, I don't. In fact, I pay attention to every hair on a person's body, just as I pay attention to each human life. Okay, so there'd be a lot to unpack there in regards to the theodicy and the theology that's involved in God paying attention to every hair and paying attention to every human, just like the midrash of every blade of grass has an angel behind it saying grow. So there is a tension to everything. In fact, one explanation of what it means to live a godly life is for humans to be concerned with everything around us, just as we suppose here God is concerned with all of life. On a similar note, let's think of the Jewish custom to not cut a baby boy's hair until his third birthday, traditionally called the Upshirin. The upshirin. While traditional Jews rest this custom on the idea that a young boy might be protected from harm if his appearance is not made distinctive by cutting his hair in some individualizing way, perhaps a better understanding of this practice takes an opposite approach. Parents who allow their child's hair to grow wild are parents who recognize the importance of a child being allowed to find his or her own way to become a tame, responsible, helpful member of a society. We wait to cut our child's hair, then to remind ourselves that our adolescents should be given time to express their authentic selves without us making undue educational interventions in their natural development. Rousseau, Rousseau would love this. Was it Rousseau? Uh, who wrote the book Emile? I had to read this book Emile in grad school. I think it was, uh, I'm 90% sure it was Rousseau. Uh, yes, Rousseau, um, who said we should raise a child in the um, um, to not mess with their nature, basically homeschool. Uh, he argued kind of for homeschooling. Now the irony there, or I guess the tragic irony, is that Rousseau abandoned his own children. Um, he abandoned his own children to an orphanage, as I recall. Um, I spent a year studying Rousseau. It's amazing when you spent a year thinking about someone, and then you have to recall whether it's actually true or not. But um, uh, anyways, so one explanation of the Upshiran could be that um, we wish to not intervene in the first three years of a child's life so that um, uh, they can become their natural self before we intervene. Um, now, that sounds really great unless you've had a, a, a child under the age of three, in which case you know you need to make a lot of interventions um, in their life to make sure they don't bite their sister, they don't walk in the road. They don't put bubble gum. Actually, they shouldn't have bubble gum at all, right? They don't put grapes in their mouths or put gum on the wall or whatever they're going to do. Um, in fact, it feels like everything you do with a child under three is intervention, um, intervention mode. Nonetheless, there is some domain of their existence, we might say, is not we want to naturally flourish. I always like the bracha some people have given us after birth where they say, um, um, enjoy discovering who your child is as opposed to kind of enjoy the process of cultivating them, which of course is its own experience, but discovering who your child becomes, um, who, who they are in their nature. Now, um, okay, so right, so we said two ideas there. One idea by the upshirin is let their hair grow so they can become their natural self. The other idea, which I kind of mentioned in passing, but I want to just flesh out, the Kabbalistic idea, it's actually a little bit disturbing, might be a little too strong, but... Um, uh, interesting, let's say. Um, the Kabbalah says that Lilith is going to be a temptress to the little boy. She's going to um, have him have a wet dream or something, which of course is impossible, I think. Obviously, it's impossible for a, a, young, a young little boy. But she's going to uh, seduce him 
Um, and so to avoid him having any sexual thoughts, which of, is, of course is absurd, um, we're going to confuse Lilith by making him look like a girl. So this is the Hasidish idea based on the Kabbalah. We're going to make him look like a girl so that the, the, the mystic seducer, which of course is a problematic way to kind of uh, think of Lilith, but she's the one also who's, who tries to seduce Adam and Gan Eden. Um, so, so to, you know, as it's explained. Um, so, um, so Lilith is going to try to seduce the little boy. So if we make him look like a girl, she'll be confused and not be able to get to him. Okay. So maybe we'll come back to this idea in our, uh, in our, in our conversation, this idea of Lilith. Isn't there a magazine called Lilith? Does that still exist? Is that a feminist magazine called Lilith? Okay. You'll, you'll uh, let me know in the chat or wherever. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about the upshare. Now it's also worth mentioning, yeah, Lauren, Lauren, I hear you, um, I hear you. Um, that, yeah, this idea uh, over there. As you know, Kabbalah is very uh, genderized. It's very genderful, right? God is not genderless, God is genderful. So too, gender and sexuality is very fluid. Yeah, Cheryl, thanks. Lilith is a magazine, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I have read a few pieces there, thank you. I always like to check if I'm not totally sure. And um, it, it is worth mentioning also that we don't have many customs for little girls. Um, we don't have many traditional customs for little girls. Um, obviously, we don't have a bris mila. We talked about this last time. That's good. That's a good thing. We don't want female genital cutting. Um, we also don't have the upshirin traditionally. I mean, there are some people who do it. In fact, it's even easier to do for a girl because most parents aren't so interested in giving their little girl a haircut before the age of three. I mean, some might give a little trim, but most aren't so interested. Whereas uh, a lot of parents feel very inclined to, to trim their little boy's head. Some people do it as early as six, uh, six months, nine months, a year. Some might wait a year or two, but usually by three, a parent has, has given their little boy a haircut unless they're waiting for an upshearing. So it's even easier to have an upshearing kind of uh, ceremony for a girl. Um, to celebrate that. I mentioned last time that I would like to see some kind of practice. Uh, we have to think carefully about how to do this around a first menstruation, some kind of uh, women's celebration, girl celebration, something honoring the biological cycle that girls experience uh, so that there's not shame attached to it. Um, that's something to think more about as well. Anyways, that's a little bit about, about the upshearing over there. Now, a comb, a comb, doesn't always carry a, with it a warm feeling in Jewish lore. Consider this famous Talmudic story from Brachot 61b. 61b. Um, yes, yes, Eileen. Um, the, yeah, it, uh, for a little boy to have an erection, this, this is obviously not a sexual thing, at least we, as we imagine. Uh, I mean, maybe Freud thinks it's a sexual thing, but really probably a, uh, a temperature thing or a contact thing, a pressure thing. Um, you know, a boy in a warm bath or laying in the bed or something like this. Biological, yeah. Anyways, uh, okay. So this is about Rabbi Akiva in Brachot 61b. Um, this is a famous story about Rabbi Akiva's death. At the hour when Rabbi Akiva was taken out for execution, the Romans were putting him to death, it was time for the recital of the Shema. Thus, while they were combing, they were combing his flesh with iron combs. He was accepting upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. His students said to him, our master, even at this point, you're going to praise God. He said to them, all my days, I have been troubled by the verse and its proper interpretation with all your soul, right? From the Vihafta, with all your soul. Even if God takes away your soul, I said, when will I have the opportunity of fulfilling this? Now that I have the opportunity, shall I not fulfill it? In reciting the Shema, he prolongs saying the final word, one. Right? This is the custom. When we say Echad, we extend it. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. We extend it, just like he does over there. One. Of hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Until his soul departed while saying one. Um, there's more to say about that. But anyways, a heavenly voice went forth and proclaimed, happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, that our, your soul has departed with the word one. So this is a case of martyrdom uh, where Rabbi Akiva is saying Shema. We've talked a lot about Shema and martyrdom and the significance of what's involved with over there. Um, and the, the relevance here is the idea of a comb, the comb not being something with the hair, 
but something of combing flesh, hot, you know, hot comb, um, as a form of torture for their, their goal of denouncing, his goal of denouncing God, but he does the opposite. There's another story involving Rabbi Akiva and Hare, a story that can be read in a positive vein, although we're going to give a feminist critique of the story. Rabbi Akiva's wife sold the braids of her hair and used the proceeds that, so that he could go study Torah. This is found in uh, the, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, Sota 915. Although this might seem like a touching story of humble self-sacrifice, it certainly could be read that way, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler offers a feminist critique of this story that focuses on the way in which Rabbi Akiva's wife negates who she is. Here's what Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler writes in an article called The Jew Who Wasn't There, Halacha and the Jewish Woman. Uh, and then, oh, sorry. And then her response, her response to that, a contemporary Jewish review, which is written in 1973. So she wrote this already. Wow, 50 years ago she wrote this. Wow, 50 years ago, 47 years ago. She, she's, she just uh, wrote a book now about, about the mystic and the cat. I, I did a VBM interview with her about that. But how, wow, she wrote this 50 years ago. She must be, anyways, I don't have to guess people's ages. Anyways, here's what she writes. How is it that the Siddiquim, the righteous people, seem so individualized? Oh, no, excuse me. I, 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 I took out the gender there. How is it that the Siddiquim, righteous men, seem so individualized and that, and that Sid Kaniot, the righteous women, so generalized? I would advance two reasons, she writes. First of all, the mitzvot of the tzedeket are mainly directed towards serving others. She is a tzedeket to the extent that she sacrifices herself in order that others may actualize themselves spiritually. One has no sense of an attempt to cultivate a religious self built out, self built out of the raw materials of a unique personality. The model of the tzedeket is Rachel, the wife of the wife of Rabbi Akiva, who sold her hair and sent her husband away to study for 24 years, leaving herself beggared and without means of support. Or the wife of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Rimenov, who sold her share in the next world to buy her husband bread. Okay, so this is interesting. The idea that a tzaddik sacrifices for his self-actualization. Of course, this is not the only model of a tzaddik that she's laying out. But let's, let's go along with her critique. That the tzaddik is someone who is self-actualized. He is um, someone who is going to go study in the academy for decades, like Rabbi Akiva. Whereas the, the tzedeket is the one who enables it. She's going to serve and enable him to do that by selling her hair, by working in poverty to enable that. Um, of course, there are other models of righteous women which are not in that vein. And of course, we wouldn't want to limit that as virtuous, someone who enables others. We think of the motherly role, a mother, someone who sacrifices in order that her, her children can thrive. This is, this is seen in pregnancy. This is seen in post-pregnancy and all that comes with that, Depre oftentimes depression or baby fat, um, you know, pregnancy uh, fat and, um, and um, other dimensions that come just biologically with being the one who bears the burden of uh, giving birth, not to mention uh, uh, labor, the pains of labor, um, uh, not to mention the challenges of menstruation, not to mention um, all the, you know, uh, uh, gender disparities in regards to women in the workplace. Um, and, okay, and, and the list goes on and on. In any case, we don't want to diminish, we don't want to downplay the value of, of, sacrificing oneself for others, for one's spouse, for one's children. That's virtuous. But I think what, what Rachel Adler is pointing out here is if um, uh, the traditional mold, which would limit one's potential, if it was that the tzaddik was great because his actualization out in the world, and she's great because she enables the people to go out in the world, we would want to um, challenge that paradigm such that people could choose righteousness in whatever path speaks to the most, enabling others, and um, impacting the world. In my own life, I see this shift happening where um, um, uh, enabling others to actualize their potential is growing in its significance for me uh, as compared to you know, a more youthful approach of wanting to go out into the world myself. Actually, Adam Grant has a, a book out there about uh, the decline of one 
um, one, uh, one's capacity professionally and shows actually that it is true that the greatest creativity in one's career comes in one's 20s and 30s, maybe 40s even. But then there's a significant decline, 50s, 60s, 70s. And if one fights it, they're going to be depressed. They're going to lose their job. They're going to be less appealing. They're going to um, be desperate. They're going to be resentful or competitive. But he says what one should do, because he says empirically that's true. Of course, that doesn't mean it's always true. I'm sure we could find many historical examples where one's most creativity emerges in their later years. Um, but he says, actually, the pivot one should make professionally is rather than seeking to be extremely creative, is moving towards a mentorship role where one takes what, th what the, the unique role they can play of experience mentoring people who are younger um, to enable their creativity to flourish based upon the experience they can mentor them towards. So Adam Grant has been famous for advanced, and I, I, excuse me, I, I don't know if Adam Grant said this or if he interviewed the person who said this, uh, but I know Adam Grant writes this. So I don't want to, uh, to give the, the credit where it's not due, but I know he writes this idea and I don't know who did the empirical study actually. In any case, this all goes back to what does it mean to be righteous and what does it mean to, to mature, to mature um, in the ability to do righteous things oneself and to enable other people to do righteous things. And Rachel Adler's approach here of critiquing. Anyways, all of this goes back to saying that Rebbe Akiva's wife sold her hair so that, um, um, so that Rebbe Akiva could uh, study and actually become one of the greatest, greatest sages in Jewish tradition. So one might say it's worth it. Was it, was it more important, important that she actualized her own potential or more important that one of the greatest sages in Jewish tradition actually left the Torah behind that he did and she took it for the team. So the gender critique is, the feminist critique is important and in, in the scheme of history, it's, all, it's worth also problematizing what's actually best for the world. Being a big Les Miserables fan, I, can, I also can't not mention that Fantine sells her hair, Fantine sells her hair um, to survive and uh, I believe to enable Cosette to survive. Um, her daughter. And so uh, I don't know if that's actually in Victor Hugo's version. I, I confess I never read, read Victor Hugo's book, but I've listened to the play a thousand uh, times. And uh, since my kids want to hear it in the car, 10,000 more. <laughs> so anyways, uh, this idea of selling hair, my wife donates her hair as many women do to uh, women with, uh, and young girls with uh, cancer. Um, this is a, a common practice to, for women to donate to grow their hair longer than they need to in order that they can donate it. Um, oh, oh, so I see over there, uh, somebody wrote, oh, AJ wrote, we don't know Rebbe Akiva's name. Actually, if you asked me what Rebbe Akiva's name was, wife's name was, I wouldn't know, but Rachel Adler writes over here that it's Rachel. So I assume she knows. Um, I've never heard that before, but uh, she must have done the research or maybe I just overlooked it where she writes in her commentary here that, that Rebbe Kiva's wife's name is Rachel. But it's true, many characters, biblically and Talmudically, uh, thank you, Andrea, um, uh, um, are often called the wife of. Now, uh, one, more, one more point on this issue of mothers who give over their lives for their children in a way that traditionally uh, men didn't do. By the, by the way, isn't it interesting that men used to play a lot of golf? <laughs> I mean, maybe there's still men that play a lot of golf, but like men who like had young children in the house, you know, like I can't imagine me like, all right, I'm at Sunday morning. I'm going to play 36 holes or 18 holes. See you in five hours. You know, the idea of leaving for a half hour jog is a lot, but anyways, uh, but anyways, the idea of giving over your life to your children, this is the way some people interpret the Akedah that when, uh, when Sarah dies at the Akedah, um, that, you know, this interpretation, I think I mentioned this a few malachar ago, the interpretation that actually she pleased to God, saying, don't take Yitzchak's life, take my life instead. So actually, she gives over her life at the Akidah, at the binding of Isaac, so that Isaac can live. Again, going back to Les Mis, it's Jean Valjean's plea to God, bring him home, take my life instead of his, so that Cosette can marry uh, the, um, this young man, soldier. So this idea of pleading to God to take one's life instead of someone else's, um, I find uh, to be a very inspiring theme. And I myself, I have told this to my kids. I say, listen, when you walk into the street or do something dangerous, you're actually putting me at risk because it is without a doubt that I would give my life for you, donate an organ or um, 
um, or jump in a street or whatever. I think there's few parents who wouldn't think of them, their lives that way. It's, and it's, it is most certainly biological. It's not a moral choice. It feels biological and instinctual, as any parent here can speak to, the idea of, uh, you know, putting your arm in front of your child to save their, save their life. So, um, uh, okay, anyways. Rabbi Harold Kushner, Rafua Shlema, he should live and be well. You probably haven't seen him in public life in some years, um, but he should, uh, he should have a good healing. He pointed out the significance of the fact that hair is dead and unfeeling. Here's what he writes. He wrote this in the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Pain is the price we pay for being alive. Oh, dead cells are hair our fingernails can't feel pain. They cannot feel anything. When we understand that, our question will change from why do we have to feel pain to what do we do with our pain so that it, be so that it becomes meaningful and not just pointless, empty suffering. Okay, now the, the, the broader moral point is an obvious one that we talk about all the time. Um, this I, I question of God, why do I suffer? Of course, if somebody talks about, in liberal Judaism, 20th century, that question, they're going to talk about Harold Kushner. But what's relevant here is that he extends that to our dead cells, our hair and our fingernails, asking why can't they feel pain or feel anything at all? And his answer is because they're dead. Anything that's alive has feeling. If you want to be alive, you're going to feel things, right? And actually, this is a comforting thought in our pain to think about that our pain is a reminder that we are alive. Now, once again, uh, pastorally, we don't want to say that to someone else. Oh, Gavaldic, you're feeling pain? Amazing. Feel the joy of your life, right? But we can say this to ourselves. We can say this to ourselves that uh, the pain we feel um, is, uh, is a part of that. Um, in fact, mourning, when we mourn someone who has died, there's a joy in that mourning, as you know, if the mourning is not traumatic. Uh, but it, it is based on love. There's a closeness that can emerge in the pain of mourning that you feel, you feel not only your own life and the gratitude for life, but you feel um, the power of love that comes more strongly through longing than through, um, than through uh, presence oftentimes. Actually, one of the difficult things of those who are in partnerships, romantic, I, romantic is the wrong word. I don't know what we call partnerships romantic. I mean, how much of partnership is really romantic? 99% of it is about doing dishes and laundry, right? Romantic, romantic. I mean, I don't know, maybe your relationship is different than mine, uh, uh, um, you know, but you know, you manage kids, you take care of a house, you take care of the bills, you know, <laughs> romance. I mean, you think of like, uh, of a, you know, it's funny. You th I think of Lady and the Tramp. The only way that my daughter, my three-year-old eats asparagus is through Lady and the Tramp. So uh, the, we, my daughter and I eat asparagus through Lady and the Tramp. That's, that's how that gets her to eat it. So we put it in both of our mouths. I know in a COVID time, it's not so good. But anyways, lots of tangents, lots of tangents. But what are we talking about? What are we talking about? We're ta oh, yeah, romance. Oh, yeah. So actually, one of the difficult things in COVID is that partners don't have space away from each other. They work in the house together. They're home all day and night. Actually, as people said, what saved their marriages was their partner traveling, right? They went out at night or they went on a business trip. That was actually good for them. The idea of being together all the time might be good in Shona Rishona in the first year of marriage. But for most, actually, space is a healthy thing. Space is a healthy thing. Um, and, um, and, and a normal thing. So why are we talking about that? Um, why are we talking about that? I'm sorry. It, it was a tangent built on a tangent. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. The pain of mourning, the pain of mourning that comes from longing for someone. In fact, many people have a better relationship with their parent after they're dead than when they're alive because they celebrate those amazing parts of the, their life. Whereas while they were alive, they were fixated on, um, all the negative parts and it becomes easier. I mean, as you know, people become like saints when they die, right? Think of RBG. I mean, RBG, like everyone, you know, she was a you know, public figure. There's a lot to say about her. She's an amazing person. But literally, I mean, it's, um, she's been made into a, into a saint. She was made, there was an interesting article written about how in the Haredi world, they have Godolim. They have Godolim. They have, and then in the, in the more liberal Jewish world, they have RBG, right? So you have a Rebbe or you have RBG. <laughs> you can choose which one you hold by. You can hold by. Maybe you hold by both. I hold by both. <laughs> okay, anyways. This is why traditionally I might suggest we wash our hands after a haircut. 
or after cutting our nails. We talked about this a few sessions ago as well, to deepen our relationship to death and to the affirmation of life. Okay, so yes, this is a nice practice if you don't have it already. You know, if you shave, you shave your legs or you shave your face or you get a haircut or you, uh, you cut your nails, that you take your Nagelwasser, you take your, uh, your washing cup, boom, 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 boom. One, 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 one. Yes, I know it sounds a little bit super superstitious, but the idea of we're chasing away death, we're chasing away death with the water. The water is purifying us, but really it, it's a consciousness issue. It's a consciousness. It's a reminder as we cut away death from our bodies to reaffirm life in all that we do. One of the ways we reaffirm life today is by wearing a mask. Um, and if any of us have recovered from COVID and then we take off our mask and say, this is not so bad, bad. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Um, we have done it wrong. We have done it wrong. Um, of course, this is not a political critique. This is a, a moral critique. This is a, a Torah critique. Uh, <laughs> in the Torah, one of the rules for the Nazir, the Nazir, was that he could not cut his hair. The Nazir should not cut his hair. <laughs> looks like Jesus, right? I don't know why all these pictures look like Jesus, a shirtless guy with a beard and long hair, or, or like somebody in the 60s. Someone in the 60s, they walk around the streets like that, right? I don't know. I, I heard the 60s was great. Was it so great? Okay. Perhaps in this line of traditional thinking, haircuts were more considered vanity and rather than total dedication to God. Or perhaps there's a mourning element involved. When we are in mourning, we don't get haircuts. Anyways, it says in the Midrash over here in Bamidbar Rabbah 1010, why does God command the Nazir not to cut his hair? Because cutting his hair enhances his, his appearance. Okay, they thought men look good with short hair. Long hair, not so good. He looks like a shlemiel. While growing hair is a sign of sorrow and mourning. Therefore, God says, since this Nazir has prohibited wine for himself in order to keep himself away from licentiousness, let him grow his hair long so that he will become untidy and will be pained by it. Then his evil inclination will not overcome him. Okay, so there's quite a bit there, actually. Oh, interesting. AJ, is that true? Is that true that, that they say Jesus was a Nazir? He was a Nazirite? I never heard that. Um, Jesus was a Nazirite. I mean, obviously, Jesus was an ascetic. I mean, don't they say Jesus was a virgin? Obviously, they say that. Um, and then, of course, there's those critiques out there that say Jesus wasn't a virgin. Um, it's a theory. Okay, it's a theory. Interesting. No, but didn't he drink, uh, didn't he drink wine at the Last Supper? Um, he's not supposed to drink wine. He, and he was from Nazareth. Oh, interesting. He's from Nazareth. Interesting. Okay, interesting. Okay, AJ is holding in his, uh, his, uh, uh, his ancient Christian, uh, his history over there. So, um, so what are we talking about? Okay, it says here in Bamidbar Rabbah, it says he's a Nazir. Sorry, no, going away from Jesus now. Um, that no, he's an, uh, so, why is he, so, why, so why does the Nazir not cut his hair? Number one, it's about mourning. Number two, it's about being untidy. Um, and and n number three, about vanity, no, about moving away from vanity, about having to look good. And lastly, it's about his, his Yetzirah not overcoming him. The evil inclination, him, evil inclination not overcoming him. Oh, actually, that's interesting. That goes back to the Upshiran idea. The idea that the seducer is going to seduce the boy if he looks like a boy. And by Jesus not look, not Jesus, ugh, by the Nazir not looking um, uh, attractive, not looking joyful, um, not looking well kept, his, his evil inclination will not overcome him. Right. If I look good, I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna try to, um, um, you know, uh, meet someone, meet someone, and uh, you know, engage engage with them sexually. But actually, I don't want to be met by someone. I don't want to be thought of as attractive. I want to be untidy. My yitzhara to look good and be desireful and be attractive isn't going to win out. And so uh, that's another. So that's another over idea over there. And um, of course, this morning idea. So the idea of a beard in Jewish thought, partially Kabbalistically, is viewed, there's a holiness to the hair of the face, they say in Hasidus, but also it's a sign of mourning, that, that Jewish men are to be seen in, in mourning in the, in the Chorban, the destruction of Jerusalem and in the temple. And so that's why uh, the, the beard is not to be cut at all during times of mourning, during the three weeks and other times in, in Avelut. Um, 
And so uh, it's a sign of mourning as well. Rabbi Hirsch, Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, explains that growing the hair unimpeded expresses isolation and introversion. He seeks to be alone and to delve into himself. He wants to do some spiritual moral work of self-education. Now, um, in, in asking myself why I haven't grown a beard, there were times I, I thought about that. And maybe it is mere vanity that I don't like uh, the look for myself of a beard. Um, but I think it's also for myself and I think for others like me that we want to be a part of enlightenment. Part of the assimilation of enlightenment is that by cutting your beard, um, you look like the common person. You look like you're a part of the Haskalah, the enlightened class um, with a clean shaven face, whereas a beard looks like you're a little bit subversive to the social conformities, to the modernity of enlightenment. Of course, there's lots of people, people grow beards. As they say in uh, Brooklyn, uh, what do they say? What are they, oh, it's, uh, it's punk. Not just punk, but what do they call it? Uh, uh, okay, anyways, I know a guy who's a little bit punk, and, he, and he's a chassid. And so I say, Nu, is your beard punk or chassid? He says it's both. It's, it's chassid punk. Uh, but, but I think there's another word they use besides punk. Hipster, hipster. It, it, is, it, is it a hipster beard or, or a punk or a, a Hasidic beard? He said it's a hipster Hasidic beard. It, interesting enough, in Brooklyn, they do have a whole culture of, of hipster Hasidim over there, only in Brooklyn in America. There's nowhere else in America we have this such a phenomenon. Maybe there's little pockets. But there are these shuls. I know a lot of people go to these shuls who are hipster Hasidim. You know, they wear red shoes. They wear red shoes. They, they grow a hipster beard. They, uh, you know, go to punk concerts. But there's, but they're, you know, but they wear a black hat also, you know, so, <laughs> or maybe a, a brown hat to be a little more, uh, anyways, too many tangents here. I'm sorry. What time is it? Jeez, uh, what time is it? Oh, oh, okay. Okay. The stories of two biblical personalities, one of whom was a Nazir, reflect a perceived relationship between hair and an untamed nature. We're told that Esau, or Esau was born covered in hair. The strife between him and his twin brother, Yaakov, Jacob, was epic. And Shimshon, or Samson's hair, was the source of his storied strength that he used to achieve conquest in the arenas of love with Delilah, whose relationship with him was unsettled at best, and of war, although his ultimate victory as a warrior brought about his own death. Perhaps Asav and Shimshon are able to remind us that the way to achieve true peace in our interpersonal relationships on a broader international level is to look at each other on a level that is more than skin or hair deep. The origin of the rule followed by traditionally observant women to cover their hair comes from the idea that the hair is erva, that hair is nakedness. Rabbi Sheshet says a woman's hair is a sexual incitement. Right now, today, um, empirically, we can decide if that's true or not. Does women's hair excite uh, men? Is it viewed as sexually attractive? Um, as, as Jewish tradition says, it does. And thus, uh, um, a, uh, a traditional woman would start covering her hair starting at her wedding, either with a tichel or a shetel or a, uh, or a uh, scarf. Right In Israel, there's a whole colorful scarf um, a whole colorful scarf uh, um, uh, idea out there. Um, and, um, uh, and in other worlds, actually, they start this practice um, not at marriage, but at, at, uh, at, uh, at menstruation. We don't, we don't see that as much, but that idea does exist out there. Anyways, this is based on the idea in the Torah itself that it is humiliating for a woman to uncover her hair since her hair is private, right? We see this with, with the case of the sota, with the sota over there. Um, and it seems from the, book, from the book of Nehemiah that pulling out hair is a sign of disrespect both for women and for men. It says in the book of Nehemiah 13.25, and I quarreled with them and I cursed them and I struck some of them and I plucked out their hair and I adjured them by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, not nor take their daughters either for your sons or for yourselves. So then hair is something to be guarded and protected. Consider the fear that was involved with allowing an idolater to cut a Jew's hair. In fact, 
some people will still not go to a non-Jewish barber or, 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 or uh, uh, those who view Gentiles as idolaters. Of course, I don't think we should view Gentiles as idolaters in general. Of course, there are idolaters in the world, but the idea that a gentle, Gentile is equated with an idolater um, is, uh, is something uh, that evolves in some strands of modern halakha. Um, but here's the reason why it says in the Mishnah of Avodah Zarah, we may allow them, meaning Gentiles, to heal us when the healing relates to money, but not personal healing, nor should we have our hair cut by them in any place. This is the opinion of Rebbe Meir. But the sages say, Chazal say, in a public place it's permitted, but not when two persons are alone. So why is that? Why is it that we don't want a, a haircut alone? Because they're going to kill you. They have a knife to cut your hair and they're going to slit your throat. So apparently there was some historical reality there that this was a vulnerable position for a Jew. They say, put your head back. I'm going to shave your neck. And then they slit their throat. So yeah, in, in public, they're going to be seen. Um, but in private, excuse me, in private, yeah, yeah, in public, they'll be seen. So they're less likely to do that. But in private, you're more vulnerable. Uh, you're more vulnerable. Um, Okay, la okay uh, moving towards our conclusion here. When we comb the head, we are brushing over the brain, over the mind. The Baal Shem Tov taught, as I mentioned earlier, that we are where our thoughts are. When we use the comb or the brush, we can reflect on where our thoughts are. We can work on our equanimity, menuchet nefesh. For the Baal Shem Tov, we live by shviti Hashem l'negdi tamid, keeping God before us. And by keeping God consciousness, we make all that enters us equal, achieving spiritual equanimity. We realize that all in the mind comes from one place, and all is equal, in a sense. Every thought in me is okay. If we attach to God consciousness, it's all okay. Hell is the place where one cannot find godliness and can't find light. This is called mochin bakatnut living with a constricted consciousness where one's doubts and anxieties block an expanded consciousness. There's a block to the divine light. Instead, living with equanimity, we can see that even in darkness, there is light. When King David, David Amelech says, he will not fear as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not because God will remove the dark valley. He's not saying, I won't fear because God will remove the dark valley. He's saying that valley is life. Rather, right, going back to Kushner also, rather it's because you are with me. I shall not fear in the valley of the darkness of, uh, in the valley in the shadow of death because you are with me. When we are with God, everything can be okay in our consciousness. Maybe you have a different theology than me. Um, I mean, we all have different theologies, but for me, I find this very spiritually strengthening, the idea of divine consciousness, and that gives us a peace of mind equanimity, that we can handle anything that comes to us externally because God is with us. God is with us. And what that means is not an interventionist theology, but a level of spiritual consciousness. We can have light in the mind because everything that comes at me is equal. It's all equal to some degree on a higher plane because there is a calm in how I encounter it. Encounter it when I live on the elevated spiritual consciousness. Okay, so to conclude here, on Shabbat, we reflect on taking care of our hair, our appearance and our dignity, and the responsibility that comes with that gift. Mena pates is the remedy we need to step away from the hectic circumstances of the work week and truly take those precious moments to slow down and reflect. We can be mindful of the notion that taking care of our bodies is akin to taking care of the world. The way in which we interact with objects that manipulate our hair or our teeth or any other related part is indicative of the way we perceive our obligations to the broader world. Okay, friends, let's open up the floor for some conversation here. Questions or thoughts? Yes, uh, Rabbi Anklitz. Hi, Rabbi Biller. Yeah, hi. Um, can't hear I, you yet. So, so, can you hear me? Uh, you're yeah. still on mute. AJ, can you help? Hold on. Is Hold it on, on our end or his end? Hold oh. on. Uh, how's that? Right now? How, am I good? Still can't hear you, Rabbi Biller. No. Try now. I can't hear him. Okay, maybe you want to sign off and come back, or there's an audio issue. 
Let's come back to you. Someone else want to try? Okay. Oh, is everybody having a problem? No. Oh, the problem's on my end. <laughs> oh, the problem is on my end. Okay, sorry, Rabbi Pillar, back to you. All right, so can you hear me now? Yes, great. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oy. It's okay. It's okay. Um, so, so maybe I have a – I'm missing in the main piece here. So if the looking after our bodies is part of a spirituality, mm. are we talking here about a restriction on Shabbat from combing your hair, from brushing your teeth? And oh, good. Good, good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So um, we are dealing with the combing of the of the of the uh, of the sheep of the wool for for producing um, the materials um, over there, this tangled material that needed to be uh, sorted out, um, and then it gets extended. This idea of menapates in other directions, um, and um, usually brushing is only traditionally considered an issue if it's going to lead to a problem. Brushing teeth, if you know when you brush your teeth, uh, your teeth tend to bleed. Um, my practice, is, my practice is, the, is to pre-cut my dental floss and then floss, but only do that if it's a time where my teeth won't bleed from the flossing. Or to brush your hair if, if you know it doesn't pull out hairs. Some people brush their hair and hair doesn't come out. Many people brush their hair and they have a comb, a comb or brush full of hair. Um, some people will, will, will do that anyways. Uh, in any case, um, uh, the traditional concerns with uh, combing or brushing are less significant, um, are less significant. But anyways, just reflecting on that act, the act of brushing, um, I think if one is, is brushing or combing their hair, um, uh, that uh, one is merely uh, reflecting on, uh, on this issue of, um, on these various issues we, we talked about here, there are some people who will, who will use a broader brush, right? Rather than a, a thin, how do you call it? How do you call the little uh, pieces on a brush? What are the, like spokes? What do you call the little spokes on a brush? Oh, bristles. Bristles, bristles, yeah. Some will get a, bro a broader bristle one or use one that, w or use their hands through their hair. Um, in any case, yeah, so the idea there of thinking about how we relate to our hair differently um, on Shabbat in, uh, in order to think about these other messages. So Rabbi Biller, what do you want to say about that? Um, I'm just trying to, so it's not a restriction on doing the brushing on Shabbat. Is that, am I correct or not correct? Yeah, it, so, so this is an interesting one because uh, really it would be, it would, the bigger issue would be someone kind of brushing their dog um you gotta you have a dog that sheds a lot and you're gonna brush them like you would the you know the hair of a, the wool of a sheep or whatever the case is mm -hmm. and you're gonna give them an extensive brushing to get all their hair out um when it comes to human hair it's really a, a little bit of a different reality so this is one of the malachot which plays out a little bit differently than others which are so obvious um the issue of you know picking a fruit or watering a, watering a flower or, you, you know, using dye or ink, which we're going to talk about next week, mm -hmm. uh, where brushing itself on a human is, is not necessarily inherently a problem. Okay. So, so I'm just looking for, so the big issue is just to be conscious of the holiness of the body and of everything in the world. That's the kind of the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, um, that, you know, uh, for me, I mean, it's so interesting. How many rituals do we have associated with the mind, with the brain, with the head? I mean, you think of putting heads, uh, hands on a child's head for a Shabbat bracha or birkat kohanim, um, you know, but this idea of brushing one's hair and now thinking of that not as an act of merely a physical attraction, but as an, an act of spiritual consciousness of the mind. If you want to go even further, we thought about the spherot, right? The, 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 the 10 um, dimensions of spirituality as correlated with the body. And we get to the higher echelons of, uh, of, of, of spirituality there. And, and one would think about that while brushing or combing their hair. So here's a case rather than just saying, oh, we don't brush our hair on Shabbat. I think the idea is rather to reflect on the idea of hair and the idea of mind and brain and how we relate to it with our physical interaction with it. Okay, thank you, thanks. Thank you, thank you. I would 
Someone else? Yeah. 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 Hi. Hi. Hi, Andrea. So um, I have a couple of comments. This is a very interesting discussion on the spiritual <laughs> potency of hair. Uh, one little note is that after uh, that discussion of Rabbi Akiva and Brooke Hote, there's a beautiful passage where it talks about God braiding Eve's hair. Oh. And it comes up again in both in Shabbat and Erovine. I mean, I'm looking, you know, Bereshit is right around the corner. So it's, uh, that says 61A. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna check that out, and I'm sorry I didn't bring it. About 95A, and also an Aravine 18A. Wait, a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. You it was, when you said 61A, that was brachot. That's brachot, and Shabbat is 95A, and it's the whole passage is about the creation, the separation of Eve from Adam's body, and different um, interpretations. That right. it comes up almost word for word in the three tractates. Cool. Anyway, Great. but I also wanted to. Sorry, my voice is uh, really bad. Um, I also wanted to um, comment on Kabbalah, the image of not the um, the uh, Ativa Akika, the old ancient uh, personification of God, but in the younger Zeir on Pin talks about those wonderful hair of the Creator, the ringlets and the hair, and it's actually in the Shir HaKavod, the Songs of Glory. That image comes up and the potency, it's kind of that anthropomorphic representation of the Godhead, but those locks and each of the hair being, you know, attached to a certain part of creation. So again, it's the potency of God's hair, as it were, in those pens. Very I love it. I love it. Thank you. I'm going to go back and look at that Shir HaKavod. That's fascinating, the idea and, of the, of the ringlets of God. Sefer Yetzirah, too. Oh, Sefer Yetzirah, most famously, the anthropocentric visions there. That's all, you know, leads back to Sefer Yetzirah. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else, Andrea? Nope. Awesome. Great, great, great ideas there. Thank you so much. Yep. Okay. Someone else? I have a few comments on some of the tangents. They're just practical. Thank you, Lauren. I'm a pharmacist. I can't help it. So hair hair and nails um, are not dead. They actually are living cells. They okay. just luckily don't have nervous innervation because if they did, then every time we got a haircut, it would be painful. So that's just one. The other, which I thought was interesting because I've recently taken a class called um, Aging and Saging. And uh, it was some very, very interesting ideas, but I want to get into the whole thing. But when you said, yeah, your most productive years are like your 20s and 30s. Yeah, I could around, run around a lot and I could probably quote the most recent study. But as I got older, I had the humility to listen to my patients, to understand them, to realize that not everybody's a textbook. They're real people. And also the experience. Sometimes it was like, gee, I remember when we had the exact same situation and this is what we did. And I've seen doctors do it too. So um, although we may not be as physically active and we may not be as, um, well, I think we can still in our 50s and 60s still pick up a lot of new ideas. I think that the very fact that we have the maturity makes a big difference. Now that I'm 70, I got none of it, but that's another story. Okay. Okay. Amazing. So Lauren, if it's easy for you to send me something that shows that hair and dead uh, hair and nails, I could probably Google, but if it's something easy, you could send me that shows that hair and nails are not dead. They have living cells. They just don't have sentience. Um, I I would love to, I would love to brush up on that, brush up on that idea. And, um, and, 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 and your point is really great about saging also around this idea um, that aging is complicated and di- diverse and there's lots of different experiences and that while creativity or um, most recent studies, as you said, might be maybe sharper in earlier years, there are many virtues which most certainly um, are, are ironed up such as humility. Of course, that's not always the case, but um, such as humility or patience that can be developed uh, more, more significantly later. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Good. Someone else. Questions and thoughts. I disagree. <laughs> I think. Creative people stay creative. 
they may not, hold on. They may not physically be able to do what they used to do, but the mind does not require physicality and strength. It requires wisdom and thinking outside the box. And I think creative people do not um, lose that ability. And if you look at a lot of artists, they achieve their greatness after many years. Okay, great. Okay. So, yeah, thank you, Eileen. So, so that's great. And, and, you know, it's worth looking at this study, actually, because I wonder if, if, if y'all's experiences seems to contradict that. Um, I, I wonder if they are too focused on certain industries. I know, for example, one of the things they point to is how in the tech industry and in the like, Silicon Valley, like if you're 28, you're too old, you're like disposed. They were saying like 32, you're like, a, you're like a geezer, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like you're gone, you know, um, like they, they view the ability for certain creativity. And I wonder, I mean, they certainly look at other industries as well, but I wonder if it's too narrow of a study. Because they looking at a math perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think creativity <laughs> in writing, in music, and in art forms mm -hmm. achieves more as you age. Good, good. Now, now just, just, to, just to offer, so I think that's, this is great. And um, one of the things they were trying to say over there was that, um, that and, and again, we can disagree with this, but that creativity is not the sole virtue. They were trying to say the problem is people start to lose their self-esteem because they feel they're not as creative and they're not as publicly valued. But they're saying, actually, if people pivot to more mature virtues, rather than just creating the next new thing, they harness things that come with, come with maturity. They actually keep that, that edge in professionally on maintaining their career. So we can, again, problematize all this, but, they, but the point of their study was actually how people who were starting to experience themselves as less valuable in the, in the marketplace could actually harness skills that they found were, were, were stronger at that age. And that's a psychological problem. That's mm -hmm. not a creativity problem. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Biller, were you about to say something? You're on mute. You're on mute. How about that? Am I yeah, good? good. Good, good. Okay. I was thinking, you know, in the early 60s, from, from, uh, from what I picked up from reading, a lot of women thought their life was over when they turned 40, that it was a societal attitude. It wasn't true. Uh -huh. You know, when uh, Gloria Steinem said, this is what 40 looks like, suddenly 40 was beautiful. So maybe these studies are based on, you know, in Silicon Valley, they think you're over at 30. Well, that's, it's just a, I don't want to say dumb, but it's just, you know, it's just an attitude that probably needs to be revisited. It's not, mm -hmm. not the reality. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's right. And I think that if we have a narrow view, like a woman's primary creativity in the world is, is through reproduction, then you can imagine why a menopause experience would lead to a decline of one's capacity. Anyway, but that's actually a narrow, a, a very, a very narrow view. Vicky writes something really helpful over there as well, that actually, um, uh, that part of the maturation process is actually looking beyond individual accomplishment as someone young and more narcissistic might do and looking towards advancing the greater good. And so the notion of creativity is I, as myself, accomplish by creating something new towards me collaboratively. One, one also might say one's collaborative skills are enhanced. Me collaboratively being a part of a process of the greater good we might not typically call that personal creativity, but collaborative uh, greater good um, is something that could be uh, evolved as well. So, um, um, okay, we have the last two minutes. Anyone else have something burning to add before we wrap up? I just wanted to say yeah. that um, I don't agree with equating uh, careers to creativity or, you know what I mean, in the professional yeah. world. There's many of us that have been artists and outside of uh, that, uh, you know, the typical professional world that just continue, you know, yep. Yep. growing and great. changing. Great point. Great point. Thank you.
Um, yeah, and Vicky, thank you for that point about mentoring over there. Um, I, I know, for example, uh, actually one, one thought that came recently, I know some lawyers have shared with me that early on they loved, they loved the new cases and now they love the mentoring. Um, but yeah, when you go beyond the professional workplace or even teachers like academics who used to love the research and new books and now they love the teaching, they love the mentoring, the relationship. But, and, and then if we go beyond the workplace, it's a whole new realm as well there. So friends, I give you the bracha of Menapates. Um, the, of, in your brushing and in your combing, that we can continue to seek more virtues rather than vanities, and we continue to uh, nourish our brains and our minds, and continue to uh, to flourish as we think about Shviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, as we think about how our mind can attach to what is most just and noble. Have a great week. We uh, we have a fun one next week with dying. So Veya. See you soon. Moedim Simcha.